You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest on the pod today is Steve Magnus, who's been on before. Um, He's got a terrific new book. It's called Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and the Science of Real Toughness. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Steve Magnus, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. So I want you to talk to us about the Junction Boys. I think it's it's a really, and I didn't know this story, so I'd love you to tell it and then why it's so early in your book. I love this story too. As a, as a sports nerd and as a lifelong athlete, and then my wife is a Texas A&M alum. Oh, wow. So this hits deep. Yep. But Basically, the Junction Boys is is uh, the story of a football team. So it's the Texas A&M Aggies. When the famous football coach, Paul Bear Bryant, took over the program and he said, hey, we need to make some changes. This program isn't very good. I'm going to do something drastic. And what he did before the season started is he took all these athletes, all his entire football team to a camp in Junction, Texas which is essentially the middle of nowhere, okay? Mm -hmm. And he put them through the toughest camp that anyone could imagine. I mean, they they had people passing out from what we now know as heat stroke. They were playing on fields that weren't really fields and full of bushes and stickers and all sorts of stuff. And the reality is the vast majority of people quit. Mm-hmm. So the the as one player described it, uh, we went there on three buses and came home on one. 
because that many people quit. Yeah. And the, the legend, the kind of Texas legend is that because of this camp, this really difficult thing that they all did, then that vaulted the A&M program into, you know, into stardom essentially. Yeah. It was like, and that this was the difference maker. Mm-hmm. But the reality is this, that year, the year of the camp, the team won a single game. They were horrible. They were pitiful. Mm-hmm. A couple years later, they had a great season where they, I think, won nine games and only lost one. But on that team, there were only a handful of players left mm-hmm. from the team that went through the camp. And the reality is that the coach had just recruited better players and, and according to his own omission, got them there because, you know, he paid them under the table to come to Texas A&M, which wasn't a great program. So I... I think this is such a a perfect story because it gets at our idea of what it means to be tough and resilient is often through these like, hey, we're going to like grit our teeth and like do incredibly difficult things and and put us through this camp from hell. And then we're going to come out on the other end stronger. But that's that's not the reality of how toughness works. And that's what I tried to explore in 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 the book, Do Hard Things, is that the the kind of external macho-ness that we tie to toughness isn't the reality of how we actually manage and get through really uh uncomfortable situations and hard things to do. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, you have the sort of sports analogy, and the other one that people use all the time is the military. But we've interviewed a number of people uh, on this podcast uh, who have talked about the military has evolved their training methods radically um, in in years, and it's very different than I think people you, than their movie version of it. Yeah, you know, I think you're spot on, and I talk about this a little in the book. I was very fortunate for uh, ten years of my life. I coached. Um, at a college and university. So I had a couple athletes who went from being uh, university track runners to in the military and, and even the special forces. And I too had this idea of like the military, oh, like you go in and you just survive and they punish you and put you through all this demanding stuff and then you get really tough. But in talking with these athletes, they're like, no, you've, you've, you've got it wrong. Yes, we do really difficult things, but that's because war is really difficult. Right. But to prepare for that, we're given instruction, we're given the, you know, sports psychology. I think the, the U.S. military is the largest, um, you know, uh, they have the most sports psychologists of any, any organization or anything. And that's because they're, they teach them how to handle the difficulties and discomfort of war that they're going to be placed in or potentially placed in. So it's not the like, Oh, let's go throw you into the water and and see if you can swim. It's, Hey, we're going to give you the resources and the tools to train so that you can keep your mind level and steady when chaos is going on all around you. What I also found fascinating is uh, you talk about this new approach in the military and you say, quote, it teaches the basics of well-being and mental health, including learned optimism, resilience, post-traumatic growth, and emotion regulation. So this is amazing because it's covering a gamut of what behavioral scientists and neuroscientists tell us as what's going on being peak performers. 
And, and yet, like, I don't know almost anywhere else where that kind of work is being done to navigate complexity, which is the world we all live in. Right. And I, I, I think you hit the nail on their head there is that we live in a world that is uncertain, that is stress filled, that, you know, essentially we've moved from a, a local society to a global society where we're right. competing against everybody in everything at all times. And the military has, has rightfully said, hey, we've got to prepare for this. We've got to give people the resources, tools, tactics to be able to do this stuff. And I think in the rest of the world, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and are like, yeah, like, go figure it out. Like, yeah, yeah. work hard. You'll be okay. And tough I think it out. It's exactly tough it out. And I think that's such we're missing this opportunity to take what we clearly know from the world's best performers from the military even, and then also what's going on in the behavioral science and neuroscience and psychology and positive psychology and say, mm-hmm. hey, all these things help. Like, why aren't we doing them? Yeah. And I kind of the, the place I feel like it starts is. And you talk about embracing the reality of wherever you are. Uh, and, and we talk about that in improvisation all the time, because when you're improvising, uh, you have to be fiercely in the moment with the person you're there. That is not an easy thing to master. No, it's it's certainly not. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. I think being in the moment, especially in situations where it's it's kind of you, you know, alone in that moment in your head, you know, improv, it's like, yes, you have other people, but like, you're about to say whatever you're going to say and do what you're going to do. And it's up to you to come through in that spot. Mm -hmm. And I think so often we, we kind of shy away from that and then also kind of disguise or hide it or like, don't embrace the reality that that's what it's going to take. We almost almost tell ourselves to kind of like fake it or yeah. like come at it with this salt, this kind of false bravado. Mm-hmm. But what the research and also experience shows is that that kind of backfires. It works for really simple things. Right. You know, like me, if I was going to go stand up in front of, you know, my a room of friends, sure, faking it will work. But if I go stand up in front of, you know, 30,000 people faking, it's not going to work because my brain knows like, hey, this is a challenge. And the best way to handle challenges is to like embrace the reality of what they are so that you know how to prepare for them and you can respond appropriately to whatever stress and anxiety comes forth. And you mentioned the brain, but there's also a crucial element of the body. And this has been just a, 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 a journey I've been on because I was an athlete when I was younger, a soccer player, and, and I was aware of mind body, but I don't, I didn't get it right until I'd been through a trauma and then had to examine like, oh, my body is telling me stuff now that I just wasn't aware of and really set me on a whole other path of, of tuning that up as a way to then speak to my mind. Uh, Cause that, that, that's the path it goes, right? Yeah, exactly. It's I think you're spot on. And I think this is where sports is wonderful for this if is yeah. if we can learn and listen to it because we're we're kind of forced to listen to our body. Um and what do I mean by that is at any given moment our body is sending us all these different signals, right? Like we feel something, we experience something, we have this mood that might come through. Like the way I I like to think about it is 
that's just your muscles or your organs or your hormones or whatever, your body communicating with your mind. And if we can learn to speak its language, to understand the nuance of, hey, this is a little of anxiety that means actual danger, right? like a snake or a lion in the road, right? Yeah. Versus, hey, this is anxiety that just means I'm a little bit excited, right? Mm-hmm. If we can divvy up that nuance or figure that out, then we can better tailor our response and we have kind of control over things. When we just treat, you know, whatever that anxiety signal is, is like panic, threat, fear, then we have only one option, which is to just kind of freak out. So the better we're able to kind of slice and dice up what we're what, and understand our experience and the emotions we have, um, the better it, we're able to kind of navigate them and, and utilize them. So then I wonder, I was thinking our, our friend Sunil Gupta, when he was on the podcast, talks about conviction being more important than charisma, because you can sort of tell when someone really believes in, 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 in what they're selling or talking about. And you talk about true confidence being quiet. So how does confidence fit inside that, uh, that world? Yeah, I think confidence is incredibly important. It, confidence essentially gives us the ability to express whatever talent or potential we have. It kind of shapes the bandwidth we have. The way I like to see it is our, our, our mind and body and brain are always kind of in protective mode. Right. They're kind of making sure that, hey, you know, Kelly, Steve, like, make sure you don't embarrass yourself or don't, make sure you don't push too far in like your, your weekend jog so that, you know, you have a heart problem or whatever have you. It's always protecting us, mm-hmm. right? And confidence kind of gives us that leeway for how close to our actual, you know, threshold of threat danger can, can we get. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, we get we often get confidence wrong. We think we have to build it up and like almost fake it when the reality is confidence uh, comes from evidence. Yeah. So it's, is it, have you actually put in the work? Do you actually know what you're getting into? Like, have you done the practices? Yes. You're still going to be nervous. Yes. You still might quote unquote fail, but if you're prepared and can look back and understand that, Hey, I have the confidence to know that I can, you know, potentially tackle this problem or issue, then that's going to carry you through. If you come in with like this bravado or, you know, confidence coming from insecurity, again, that might work on simple things, but as soon as something gets difficult and your brain goes into like a, a freak out mode of like, I don't know if I can handle this. If you're surviving on this kind of fake confidence, you're going to spiral out of control. Yeah, I, I, this makes me think of the advice. And I've talked about this in the pod before, but Allison Wood Brooks at Harvard once told me that if I'm nervous before a speaking date to say out loud that I'm excited and it just gives you that, that, that little edge because I, I have been doing public speaking for forever. I get nervous before these things. I, I secretly think I'm a fraud, but the, the reality is I also know all, all of us do and the people who don't are sociopaths. So I don't think about them. Um, but this is, this is, I think, true of most people and most people want you to succeed. So if you can get yourself in that frame and in that, in that moment, and you know your stuff, 
you're going to be good. And in that way, it is quiet. It's not boastful. It, exactly. No, I think that's fantastic advice. And, and it really is kind of on that regard, especially because I do a lot of public speaking as well. And I always feel nervous. It doesn't go away. I, I think of it as like, well, this is how my body prepares me to get ready. Because the reality is, if I felt no nerves, I probably wouldn't be as good at public speaking because I need a little of that excitement, a little That's of that right. adrenaline. That's right? right. You also t- speak to a phenomenon that I did not consider uh, being a millennial in terms of the generation you grew up in. Uh, that I'd also call this some bad framing. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So in, in confidence, you know, growing up as a millennial, I was kind of inundated, especially in elementary school, uh, by the self-esteem movement. That's it. Which is essentially the kind of, hey, how do we build this confidence? Well, we're just going to tell people we're great, you know, and we'd have all these kind of assemblies and these, you know, speakers who would tell us like, build up your self-esteem. You're great at everything, Steve. Like, uh, you know, your friends think you're wonderful, all this stuff. And it sounds good in theory, right? Because you're like, oh, this is positive, all this stuff. But just like we talked about a minute ago, there's nothing backing it. Right. It would be one thing to say, hey, Steve, like, you're a phenomenal writer. You have a future at, at this. If my teacher like read my little essay and said, hey, this is great. Like, you're, that would build my actual self-esteem. That would give me actual confidence. But when there's no, no substance behind it, it doesn't work. And I think so often in, in life, unfortunately, especially for my generation, we chose the, the lack of substance because it's easier to just say stuff than instead of doing the hard work, which is like recognize and reward and see when people are doing difficult things and say, hey, this is great. You have a future at this. Hey, you should feel confident in your work because you know you you uh, made your th- your way through this difficult thing. Do you think that messaging changed and and did it overcorrect itself? Where where what do you, like, like if you're looking at the next generation behind you? I think I think it always overcorrects itself. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you know the the way I like to think of this is you know most things in society, and I'm going to generalize here, but most things in society I see is this like pendulum, right? Right. Where we just swing to one, one side of the extreme, let's say the self-esteem. And then we notice like, oh man, this might not be good. So we turn around and we all sprint in the other direction. And the reality is on most topics, the sweet spot is some happy medium somewhere in the middle. Yeah, no one right? wants that though. No one, but, no one wants to settle for that. It, it doesn't sell, right? No, it doesn't sell. You know, I, I can't. I can't name like the middle ground and be like, this is the great thing. Like be moderate on everything. So yeah, we have uh, Pete McGraw talks about the fact that people want hot tea or uh, iced tea. They do not want warm tea. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> can't sell it. Yep. Can't sell it. Oh my God. That's terrible. Um, uh, all right. You also talk about like, we create inner narratives, which, which ma- makes me think that we have exterior narratives too. Right. And those might, those might be different. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I, I think the, the humans are storytelling machines. Yeah. You know, it's what we survive on. Mm-hmm. And we have like both our inner narrative and our outer narrative. And I think with our inner narratives, it's interesting because so often we're told like to have 
it's almost like cultivate this inner story that that goes against what our natural proclivities are. Yeah. Because our, our natural inner narrative, if you just think it's 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 filled with doubt and insecurities and wondering if I can do this and wondering if I can take on that challenge. And often what we do is we sit there and we say, oh no, that's bad. That's negative. Like if you're thinking that, like you must be like weak or not ready or whatever have you. But just like you talked about earlier, it's like there's not a moment or for most speeches that you give, you think you're a fraud. Yeah. And you're you're an expert at it, quote unquote, you know, compared to a lot of people. Right. But that's just normal because again, you go back to our brain's kind of protective. Why is it thinking you're a fraud? Because it just wants to be, it wants to make sure that you're ready, right? It wants mm-hmm. to make sure that like, oh, are you sure you know what you're getting into? Are you sure that you want to take this step forward? So we have that little doubt in our head that is, that is always there. So the best thing isn't to deny it or push it away. It's to accept that it's there, but it also means that it's not true. You don't have to listen to it. You get to choose like the story you create and what voices, um, you know, you assign meaning to in your head. Yeah, and I think this is where post-traumatic growth, which we've explored a fair amount on here, is 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 really tied to storytelling because you 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 create a new narrative that you did not know you had uh, in you, and you absolutely need that to walk through the world in any sort of intact fashion when something terrible happens. Yeah. You know, and if you look at the research around post-traumatic growth, it's, it's pretty simple. It's uh, this, you know, very stressful event almost gives you this opportunity to rewrite the story. And if you take advantage of that and you do it in the right way, like you can grow from that stressful event. And I think we see that in, Again, very stressful events, but I think the same thing applies towards, um, I'll just call them not as, you know, minorly stressful events, yeah, right? right? Sure. Simple mm-hmm. daily wins and losses is if we can take that same approach where it's like, okay, how are we going to frame this? This, this matters a lot. And it, in fact, if you look at in the sporting world, elite athletes are great at this, right? The best athletes, regardless of the sport, if they if they suffer a loss, right, they don't dwell on it. They don't create a negative story of like, oh my gosh, I've lost all my performance. I'm the worst basketball player in the world. I can't shoot anymore. If they lose, they craft a narrative that allows them to learn from it, but also move on and let go. And I think that's the key. It, it's this is funny because I, I I'm working on my next book and I've been thinking about this a lot, which is. Uh, uh, Nick Epley's research out of the University of Chicago essentially shows us that we get it right around 20% of the time in our in our day-to-day interactions, which is not great. And I have been taken to, in my talks, asking, any, is there anyone in the audience who has worked at some place that they would uh, define as functional rather than dysfunctional? No one raises their hand. It's like, we all, like let's actually own up to the fact that like it's a miracle that we do what we do. Uh, but if you if you can replace your blame with curiosity, for example, you you've got an incredible chance to up that twenty percent to maybe thirty if you're if you're good, and that's a superpower. Yeah, you know that I I love that research, and it reminds me of um, you know a couple years back, 
I was I was giving a talk with a bunch of college and then world class endurance athletes. And, you know, we were talking about kind of mental strength and toughness. And I just decided to ask, I said, okay, how many of you have ever thought about, you know, stepping in a hole in the middle of a race to get out of the race? Mm-hmm. And, and slowly, but at like hands start going up. And then you yeah. look around the room and everybody's hands is up. Right. And these are again, a, a couple of them were like American record holders, like best in the, you know, world class athletes, Olympians. Mm-hmm. And you just sit there and you say, okay, we're all like, we're all dealing with the same thing. Yeah. Like yeah. we're all, all dealing with dysfunction Everyone. or doubt or whatever have you. Like, let's just accept it. You know, instead of like denying it and putting on this like facade of like, oh, I've got it figured out. Like, you know, this, this doesn't happen to me. I never think about quitting or like giving up or failing or whatever, or sabotaging myself. No, it, it happens in the best of the best of us. So just accept it and let's, let's figure our way through it. Yeah. And that's why this idea of blowing up toughness as a, as a, as a, a metaphor, as an idea is or, or reclaiming it for, you know, what, what it actually is, is so important because our to the storytelling point, like these words are truly important because they have meaning behind them. And then you assign those things wrong meaning and then you're 10 steps worse than you were before you even started. Um, and that, and that's true across a variety of domains. And it just feels it's like we had Dan Pink on talking about his book about regret and reframing that. And it feels like we figured out uh, now a bunch of us that these words are problematic um, in, in how we've defined them and it's time to, to take them back. Yeah. I, I love Dan Pink's book and, and recent work on regret. Cause I think it's, it's, it's perfect. It's, it's the same ideas that we have these ideas where it's just like, Oh man, this is a really powerful story. That's just kind of been ingrained in our society, right? Where we think, Oh, regrets, like no regrets. This is what it is. Same thing yeah. with like toughness or grit or whatever have you It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, this is what it means. And you start to realize that, you know, that's pretty damaging. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and it, it really does come back to like the stories shape and define us and the stories that we tell all like shape our values for society, which shapes how we act and respond to things. So if we're telling these stories that aren't true or that like lead us down a path of like, hey, in the case of toughness, like, you know, you should you know, have bravado, ignore your emotions, ignore what you're feeling, like just bulldoze through things. I think there's a real problem. And really, you know, where this kind of came to heart for me is in the last couple of years, I I started seeing like politicians and I won't name them, but politicians like referring to authoritarian dictators as like tough. Yes. (laughs) And when I see that, I sit there and I'm like, Oh, that's a, that's a problem because if on one hand we have all these people saying like, Hey, we need toughness. We need resilience. We got to be tough. It's, it's one of the key factors to society and performance. And the other hand, we have a, a decent section of the population saying, you know, this authoritarian dictator is tough. That's a problem. Yeah. I was just on Twitter because I'm fascinated by, and this this podcast will drop in a couple of months, and and we'll we will know whether Elon Musk actually bought it or didn't. But I saw Dick Costello, former CEO of Twitter and a guest on the pod, write, "Bullying is not leadership." 
perfect. Perfect. And it's not. It's like that, that is the definition of short-term vision and success. And it's not how, and that's the thing that's so strange because I know Jack Dorsey's you know, tight with Elon and Jack is actually a, a, not a bully. He's actually, <laughs> I've spoken to Twitter and I've, I've spent time with him and, um, you know, really cares about people. So th- this is, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, look, I mean, it's so, it was so entrenched in the television and the film and the plays and even the music that my generation and your generation grew up in, I can only hope that this messaging comes through now for future generations um, to do better. Um, and, and one thing that I wanted you to touch on too is you talk about feelings and emotions and that they aren't the same thing. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. They're, they're, they're not. The way I like to, I mean, there's complex science behind this, but the simple way I like to uh, explain it is Feelings are like, they're like urges and nudges, right? They give you a little information. They say, hey, you know, here's what's going on. You know, here's what you might pay attention to. This is what you might need to know. Emotions are like the stronger cousin. They go from nudge to shove. Hmm. The other part is emotions require context. Okay. Okay. So feelings are rather simple. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, up. Oh, <laughs> I have this very simple sensation. Maybe it's of like pain. That's okay. Emotions, maybe that pain is sadness, right? Or it could be fatigue, or it could be any number of things, depending on the context we surround it with. And there's some brilliant research that shows that just like we talked about with storytelling, emotions essentially are susceptible to storytelling is if we add context around them, then they start to take different meanings. So if you look at, um, you know, the Tahitians have a different word for, I forget, I'm going to blank on this, but they have a different word for, let's say, happiness than we do, right? Uh And because their word, like, for happiness means something different and more complex they have a different kind of physiological response to it. Or if you look at the ancient Greeks had essentially five different words for the singular singular word we have for love. They had like love of, you know, wife, love of friend, love of different things. When we add context to the emotions and how we describe them, it allows us to deal with them better. Uh, feel free to push back me on this. Uh, is is it's all, it seems to me like feelings are system one, emotions are system two. Yes, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yep. So so the quick sort of thing of like, oh, okay, this is what I see, and then and the more deliberative one. So that's interesting. I I like like that's not. I don't hear a lot of people writing or talking about that, and that seems like a fairly crucial thing to understand about the stuff that's going on in here. And I'm pointing to my body. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it is. And if you talk to uh, therapists or psychologists, um, they're really pushing on exploring this. I mean, there's some wonderful resources, like basic resources. You can Google it, like the the emotion wheel, which essentially takes like simple emotions and says, hey, here's some variety of ways to describe it. And this really came to the forefront for me Mm -hmm. as my wife is an elementary school teacher. I was like researching this and trying to figure out how to make sense of it. And she's like, oh, it's like my first graders. Like you ask them, 
what's wrong? And they'll just say, I'm sad. And they'll say, I'm sad for just about every single thing. It could be, I'm sad because my friend's not here, or I can't go to the bathroom, or I miss recess. So you really don't understand what they're saying. Right. But you have to teach them like the nuance of sadness Uh and make the complexity behind it. And then like that allows them to deal with things better because now they know, you know, it's not just I'm sad and I have no answer. It's here's this complex emotion behind it that I can add context to. And there's probably a solution to it. Or I know that I can figure out, okay, this is the actual problem. How do I deal with this? So another thing with all of this is you're not you're not going to get to peak performance without a steady stream of failure. Yes. And that's forever. Yes. I mean yeah. that's that it, you know and I think the context or the dialogue around this has shifted a little bit but it's it's almost shifted in a superficial way like in Silicon Valley there's all the kind of fail forward and all that yeah. stuff. But it's still expected that, hey, it, you know, failure is part of success and, and, and that, which it is. But I think we have to get around a world where failure isn't something negative, but it's something that is normal and just occurs. Yes. And I think for this generation, it's more important than mine or yours or anybody's mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I look back on my career and early on, I was able to fail. And what happened? You know, the people in my school knew, my mm-hmm. friends knew. That's about it. You know, yeah. my family knew. My teachers or coaches or mentors in early jobs, they knew. But now, if you look at failure, if you get fired from your job, if you don't get the promotion, if you don't do any whatever, it's, it's, everybody's going to know everybody in your circle, social media, all that stuff. And what that does is that pressure, that kind of global pressure to perform, like put so much weight on the shoulders of young people that I think it's, it can lead to some very bad places from a mental health standpoint. So the more that we can normalize and take away the power of failure, the, the, the better off we are. And that's such a central core tenet of improvisation, right? This, 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 that is, it's so amazing that, and this stuff all emanates from a social worker, uh, Viola Spolin at uh, Jane Adams Hull House in the 20s and 30s. But she recognized that we're, we're not as groups of people going to be able to express our full creative selves without um, sharing failure and normalizing failure. And, and then if you're, try, if you're attempting to create something out of nothing, you're, you're not going to have the resilience to do that unless you've fallen and gotten back up, fallen and gotten back up. And, and I think most people get it when you say it, but it's not baked in in most places. No, I, I think you're spot on. And I love, I love that uh, analogy and that research because, you know, I always come at things from an athletic standpoint because that's just my background. But like, if you don't learn to fail and instead you see failure as something to fear, what starts to happen is you you start you stop playing to win yeah and you just start playing not to lose that's right and and you never experience like your peak performance you never see your creative insight if you're just like stuck in that protective mode and i think we have to figure out as a society how do we free people up yeah you know, how do we give them the room 
to where they can, you know, stretch, try difficult things and, and see what's out there and be okay when they come back. You know, well, one I of mean, the, go ahead. Wh- one of the things that I think is really damaging again in the sports world, but also carries over into others is often early on, we're told to like hate losing mm-hmm. and like, you know, you have to almost be like wallow in despair if a performance went bad. And I think that's the exact wrong you know, message, because if you, if you hate and fear losing so much, then that just puts you in that, that place where it's like, oh, if I lose, that means like, uh, it's not that I lost at this game. It's that I myself am a loser. And like, that puts us in that protective and negative mental space that is so damaging. But I think just like sports, which creates uh, pr- practices with low stakes where you can fail, um, we can do that. You can make low stakes situations in which people fail. And then, and then one of the things that I, I talk about that's so amazing at Second City is we have this two act scripted show and a third act that is completely improvised, which is where we try material out. Um, that, and the third act is late at night. It's free. So if people want to go home and other people want to come in, if there's any empty seats, anyone can come in. The cast often switches out of their more formal clothes into less casual. And you've just set, you set the context for we're going to fail more here because that's what happens. But people don't care because you, you, they like, oh, now it's a high wire act. And you sent me all these signals of what, what, what happens. And that it's been like that for over 60 years. And that's why this works. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's amazing, right? I mean, it's like that, that they, and I don't think, I can't imagine the founders of Second City knew because the science didn't exist then to understand that this is how, how it works. But it was just like, I, I remember working here for a short period of time and just realizing, oh, like this is a genius setup. Yeah. Th- you know, this is why I am by no means a comedian or an improv or anything like that, but I love it for this reason. Because whether that example was Second City or whether the example of, uh, you know, comedians going out on the road and playing small shows. Small houses. Yeah, 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 yeah. Test out their stuff. Yeah. Test mm-hmm. out their stuff. Like, I think that is brilliant. Yes. Because it's the same thing. It's like low stakes, mm-hmm. but it's still the same thing you're going to do in the, you know, in the big special or in the big show. Yeah. Same basic principle, but try it out. Like yeah. fail. And, yeah. and it's okay. I wish so much that we could, you know, shift that mindset to other everywhere else. Everywhere because, else, business. Business yep. needs, they, they need practice spaces for your pitches, for your reviews, for all the different things, the interactions with other human beings. It's like that, that is what's screwing everything up. It's like, you can, it's funny because, you know, we get hired to work with tons of different kinds of businesses. And I always love the people coming like, well, do you have domain experience working in the advertising field? Because it's so different. I'm like, are you going to tell me that your human to human problems are different in advertising compared to anywhere. Like, like it has nothing to do with that. You don't know that it has nothing to do with that. It's humans. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Amazing. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for your thank you because, but before I do that, I I couldn't help but write this quote down in, in your book. And since we offer a lot of team building and ensemble work, and that's, that's in your area, you say, quote, in a strange way, a cult and a team have some startling similarities. <laughs> it's okay. So that's scary. 
Well, you know, it, it is to a great degree because what is a cult? Like you're trying to get everybody on the same page, motivated, you know, to do the job. You're, you have this like greater than thou purpose and everybody in aligned and working towards things. And I see it as there's like a nefarious way and then a good, healthy human way. Right. And the good, healthy human way is creating the team. The nefarious way is creating the cult, even if it's not really a cult. And how do you create the cult? Well, you use fear and punishment and like authoritarianism to kind of control people and like you isolate people so they can't interact. That's one way that, 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 you know, you can create this kind of performing vehicle or business or team or what have you, but it doesn't last. And it's horrible, you know, for everybody. But yet in the business world, maybe not to that extreme, we often create these like fear-based, punishment-based, like authoritarian control, dictator-style organizations. Yep. And that again, it's not good for us. It does when push comes to shove, those those businesses or organizations fail. And what I try and describe is you know, there's a different way to create, I'll just call it a healthy cult, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, that that shared vision, the motivation, the drive, the passion behind things to see this through as a group. But you do it by not fear and threats, but by fulfilling people's basic psychological needs, right? right. If you give people the safety, the security, the sense that they're valued, the sense that they have some input and control and autonomy, the sense that they truly belong and are cared about, then people will thrive. It's, yeah. it's not complicated, but no. really hard to do. Yeah, we had Stephen uh, M.R. Covey on the podcast, and the way he frames it is you've got command and control, which is the cult. You have benev benevolent dictators, which is the way most <laughs> things exist. And he wants to move it to trust and inspire. So it's that getting underneath that idea of like they they will work for you. Give them some autonomy and give them a, a little bit of a roadmap, and you're good. And you're good. Um, there's other work inside that, but yeah, that that's that's the thing. Okay, so we've been asking returning guests is a new thing we did. Uh, who would normally they probably told us a yes hand story. So um, we're talking about thank you because stories, and this is based on the research that we did at the University of Chicago about how to stay inside a difficult conversation using gratitude and truly seeing the other person. Uh, do you have a thank you because story for us? Yes, I do. And I love this idea. So thanks for bringing it. I'm actually going to tell one that it happened to me, not where I was the thank you because. Oh, okay. I love it. So um, this book is one of the people is dedicated to is Tom Ad uh, Tom Abbey, who you know sadly passed away in his 30s due to a brain tumor. But we were college, uh, you know, teammate, teammates on a track team in grad school. And he was finishing up school and he became, he opened a gym and he was a strength coach. And he told us, our coach, our mutual coach, he said, hey, let me take over the team strength and conditioning work. And our coach said, great, you know, hand it over. Well, we were both about the same age. I walked into his office and he says, hey, Steve, like, here's what we're going to do. Like, let's try this. And being young and arrogant and thinking that I knew everything because my background was exercise science and training as well, I kind of, you know, told him off and said, no, that's not what works. This is what works. This is how you do it. This is the right way. You've got the wrong ideas. And Tom just sat there and listened to me. 
-hmm. And he listened to me and he listened to me and listened to me. And then he paused, stopped. I was done. He paused a couple minutes and then said, you know what? Thank you, Steve. Most people just nod their head and agree and take it. I don't agree with everything you said. I disagree on this point, but you brought up some really interesting points. And, you know, I think your philosophy on XYZ actually has some merit. And let's talk about it sometime. Let's explore that. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being, I was like taken aback. And at first, that never happens. That never happens. It never happens. And I was just like, oh man, I'm a jerk, was my first thought. (laughs) And then my second thought was like, oh man, like look at this guy who just put his ego aside, kept his mind open. And wants to explore and learn. And that really shaped it. You know, I still remember this story and, and think about it because it like shaped how I approach difficult things and how I approach, you know, conversation and discussions on, on topics where there may be disagreement. Well, I think it's important to remember that like meaning is made in moments. And, and so like paying attention, you know, uh, uh, another one of our guests said, like, notice what it was Marcus Buckingham it is like, notice what you're noticing, you know, mm-hmm. and I, that's such a useful t- thing for me to think about in, in, in every context of my life and, and, you know, and drawing from that and learning and, and all that stuff. That's a great thank you because. Yeah, thanks. I love that too. The book is called Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Science of Real Toughness. Steve Magnus, thank you for coming on the show. The Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
recevoir.